So great, you have all your data. Okay, here it is. Okay, great, it's fixed up. Okay, great. Maybe you're doing an AI ML you know, model on that data or on multiple data streams. But are you actually getting to the point where you are driving ahead a project using all these cohesive data streams and actually learning from them dynamically in real time with updates? Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth Healthcare and Life Science Startups at AWS. And today, I can't wait to hand the mic over to my colleague Amrita Sarkar for an exciting and insightful conversation with Tetra Science. My name is Amrita Sarkar. I'm a principal healthcare and life sciences business development manager at AWS, where I work with the leaders and investors behind the world's most innovative healthcare and life sciences startups and help them build and operate at scale, accelerate their time to market, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and win more business. I'm a mathematician and computational biologist by training, as well as a former venture capital investor. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mike Tarselli, Chief Scientific and Knowledge Officer at Tetra Science. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. Hello, Amrita. Thank you so much for having us. I'm honored. All right. Just to jump in, Mike, could you provide us an overview of Tetra Science and its mission and how it serves customers in the life sciences industry? Sure, I'd love to. So Tetra Science has a pretty bold vision. Tetra Science is looking to solve humanity's grand challenges by accelerating and improving scientific outcomes. And you might ask, how do we do this? And how are we different from other companies? Well, we, much like everybody right now, um, you, you can't really walk down the street without seeing an article about chat GPT or about large language models or about language models or machine learning that allows you to look at new innovations or see through your data or learn new trends. Well, we don't do those models, but we provide and prepare the data that goes into those models that feeds them. We like to look at it as a pyramid. So if you think about a four level pyramid, you've got one on the bottom that says, hey, data integration, where the heck is my data? Bring it in. Middle layer sort of data engineering do something with that data, make it into schemas, make it so that you can actually interpret it, give it consistent headers. Middle, top middle level is data science. Okay, you've got the data. It's in nice curated format. Let's actually look at it across, do some statistical models, do some comparisons, bucket it, gate it. And the top is that AI ML. But we posit that you can't actually get to the top. You can't get to AI machine learning without good engineering, good production, and good data science ahead of it. Does that help? Yes, absolutely. So Tetra Science today is not directly doing ML, but is a huge enabler for ML for your customers, if I understand correctly. You got it. And we actually have a lot of production customers in the biopharma realm, top 250, that are currently using us to enable their machine learning. I'm not going to be able to say too many names directly on here. However, I can give you the examples of how they work and what they do. Sure. We'll get into some of these examples a little later on in the conversation. But we'd also like to learn more about you personally, Mike. What brought you to Tetra Science and how long have you been with the company? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I'm, I'm just your random scientist turned, apparently, tech entrepreneur and business executive, you know, like one does. Um, what does that mean? So I initially wanted to become a doctor. When I was a little kid, I was going to be a doctor, the kind that helps people in a hospital and <laughs> cures sick babies and cures cancer and whatnot. And then I realized somewhere around college that the sight of blood 
made me do a double take. And then all sort of six, one, two fifty pounds of me went right down. Um, it takes a lot of nurses and orderlies to pick up a very large person. <laughs> I decided that maybe wasn't my path. So the way I actually got here was I loved chemistry. I loved all of the biology that led up to it in high school. I still remember my science teacher, Dr. David Vito, who would draw up beautiful renderings of DNA, of proteins, of chemical structures on the chalkboard. And I was like, wow, I want to learn how to do that. And in college, I learned that was actually chemistry and biochemistry underneath the biology that lets you learn what the molecular systems were. So I said, it's okay, I'll do that and I'll see if I can make a career there. And right around that time, I was very lucky to get an internship in Boston and to learn how to do synthetic chemistry. This was um, 2000. So it was a long, long, long time ago in chemistry and pharmaceutical land. But I was basically put in front of some silica gel columns and some HPLCs and told, go purify some things. And that may sound awful to some people, but I loved it. I thought it was amazing. The next year, I was allowed to do more chemistry. The next year, I was switching companies, actually, to a company called Millennium Pharmaceuticals, precursor to now Takeda one of the early uh, companies that was taking advantage of the Human Genome Project. And I was there really exposed to being a chemist for the first time. So making molecules at the bench, delivering them to process chemists, putting them in DMPK assays, running my own NMRs, my own mass specs, and just learning a lot at the bench and learning from really smart people. However, I got to this point quickly where I realized that I was never going to be able to move further because I wasn't able to go into the product strategy meetings in the afternoons on Fridays. And I said, well, what do you need to do here? And they said, you need a PhD to be in this room. And I said, okay, how long does that take? And they said, oh, five to seven years. I said, no, I'll be out in four. I was out in four. I called them back up. I said, hey, I have my PhD now. Can I please uh, come back into your cool project meetings? And they said, well, we only hire people with postdocs. So <laughs> to that, of course, I replied, what the heck is a postdoc? So I learned what that was. I went and did one. I came back and called them back. This is now about 2009, 2010. And I say, hey, I want my old job back. And they say, it's the absolute nadir of the Great Recession. We have no jobs. Thanks. <laughs> I went, oh. <laughs> so um, through a, a large and winding path of working at a contract research organization in the mountains of North Carolina, to working at a chemistry startup doing neuroprotective molecules in uh, New Haven, just outside of Yale University, to then working at Novartis, um, small company, maybe you've heard of it, <laughs> um, to then That's working vaguely for... vaguely familiar. Vaguely familiar, of course, to then working at a scientific society called SLAS. And that brought me to here in 2020 because I realized suddenly that there was an awful lot of problems that were fundamentally data problems. And so I've been here for almost three years. It'll be officially three years in about a month. And uh, I've really been amazed at the talent level here at Tetra Science and at the commitment and at the scale. We've gone from 23 people, basically, Series A funding, small committed team, to, to well over 250 with large Series B and with a large market that is growing and seemingly needs more and more data integration every year. What a fascinating journey. I love the different hats that you've worn over the years from fundamental science research to working at a startup to working at a very large pharmaceutical company and now at Tetra Science. That's great. T talking about Tetra Science and how it was founded, it was also founded by researchers from academic labs. And I was wondering if you could tell us how this DNA informs your understanding of your target customers today. So how do you exactly adapt to the needs of different customers, um, such as biopharma or biotech startups? 
Sure. Uh, that's a loaded question. I'm going to sort of peel back the layers of the onion to get at the very crux of your point first. First, you said, hey, the academic founders, yeah, we're, we're sort of in the second wave already of Tetrascience. Our first wave was more of an Internet of Things business, pitched mostly at biotech and pitched mostly at sometimes academic labs. Our founders came out of MIT and Harvard and they saw the problems around them and they said, you know what people need? They need a way to monitor individual instruments and processes so they can save money, get their data off. Okay. And that business was okay, but it wasn't taking off. And then a couple of troubles surfaced and the company nearly careened out of control. And then around 2019, two of the founders, this is Spin Wong and Patrick Grady, reimagined the business. They said, hey, the thing that actually has scale opportunity here is not the monitoring of the instrument. It's not the lab utilization. It's actually the fundamental underlying data platform. So maybe we can take that and actually say, hey, uh, large pharma companies, what can you do with this now? And it's been growing like a weed ever since. That vector of looking at data integration has been something that has allowed us both to see it from the small biotechs grow to large pharmas someday, right? And then to also take projects from the single lab level to say, hey, this lab needs these three instrument streams integrated, and then they need to do this kind of engineering on them to enterprise thinking. Okay, a large pharma now needs data conversion for these 1,000 or 10,000 instruments and this raw data intake past that and these event drivers. Oh, and by the way, can they get those converted into Redshift or Snowflake or what have you? And can they be upgraded to an open source data model? So this is some very different territory than we were approaching just three short years ago. And it's, it's really fascinating and it's fun that our customers are pushing us to this. Um, I would love to say that we had a master plan for everything that's happened to us. However, I would say that some of it has been, yes, we want to engineer data and we want to get to AI machine learning. But the other flip side of that has been customers pushing us to get better and better. So that's what's led to our GXP program. That's what's led to our learning management system. That's what's led to our conversion to all these different open source standards. That's what's led to our use case accelerators. Those are all customer-led activities. I love it. Here at Amazon, we talk a lot about working backwards from our customers' needs. And a lot of the services that AWS has created over the years have also been a result of exactly the process that you just described. Um, okay, since we're talking about data integration, could you tell us uh, maybe for a bench scientist who's just discovering Tetra Science, how you go about integrating with different lab instruments and data sources? And maybe could you also share some success stories of Tetra Science customers leveraging your platform to streamline scientific research and improve data management? Sure, I'd love to do both of those. The funny part is the bench scientist doesn't tend to be the first to discover us. They end up being a beneficiary of what we do in that they will go into their electronic lab notebook, their ELN, or their LIM, their lab information management system, and they'll say, holy cow, look at all this data that's landed here look, my, my plate reader heat map is you know, generated for me immediately. Or this Jupyter notebook's been opened up and it has all of my tables organized from my output of my cell therapy manufacturer or my biomanufacturing run. That tends to be more of a, um, they get to be a consumer of the data, but they're not usually as involved. The people we get in with, I guess, first tend to be the scientific data engineers. The folks who are in the lab and are maybe, they're not always classically trained scientists, they're not always classically trained data people. They're not even always classically trained engineers. They just come from one of those, 
like the other two <laughs> and say, well, someone in here, because we're doing our large high content screen or we're doing our you know, monitoring of our cell harvesting, somebody's got to write Python scripts. <laughs> somebody's got to move data around. Somebody's got to set up a you know, server to relay data or some sort of a stream or invent ingestion or manage all the software. So that person, he or she, ends up being our first champion. They throw their hands up and they say, you know, I'm really sick of doing this with Excel or with random relational databases or with, you know, vendor proprietary software. So they, they call us and they say, please, I have 400 instruments I look after. I have to get the data off of them in a routine basis. People need them fit into their ELN and I just can't keep track of all of it. So we say, great, we're going to help you out with that. And then the next person who finds us after that is the data scientist. Because then he or she says, suddenly I have all this data here. Where'd that come from? I can't believe it's all here and it's opened up and it's groomed and put into a schema. We have a schema I'm sure you've heard called IDS or Intermediate mm -hmm. Data Schema. It's just JSON. So if you can look at a sheet of text on the internet for a web page or for a product form, then you've seen JSON before. That means you, even as a data scientist who may not know that instrument or that technique super well, you can still open up JSON and you can start looking for metadata tags right away. You can start looking at the size and shape of the data set that comes out, the assay, the output, the intention. And so they start seeing all these JSON documents coming out and they go, holy cow, now I have you know the entire legacy data set of Department X available to me and it's crossed against all the other things that are hooked in. So those two people, the scientific data engineer and the data scientist dependent of the project tend to find us first. And then the scientist and the project manager and the scientific IT, then they benefit from having all that stuff. And they suddenly, what's it? The Arthur C. Clarke quote, right? Any sufficiently mature technology indistinguishable from magic, they, they start seeing this magical thing appear where data lands in their ELNs and limbs. And they go, I want more of that Tetra science thing. And from your experience, given what you just described about adoption, how fast does that process go? From the time that, that the first stakeholder discovers TetraScience to, you know, when the entire organization wants to adopt you. Sure. Being honest, everything happens on a spectrum, right? There's no black and white binary examples in life, at least not many. In this case, there's some people where it's three or four weeks. They try a pilot or a POC and then in a month, they're like, holy cow, we need to expand this and move it. And there's others where it takes some months, maybe even a year, where they have a harder to change organization, more hands have to touch it, more people have to sign off. Maybe they're in a compliant or highly regulated space like manufacturing or something where they just can't, you know, they, they can't move this fast and light. They have to do the diligence. So, you know, then we have to do supplier side audits and we have to do pen testing and you know, you've been there before. <laughs> Absolutely. And you just talked about the data scientist being one of these key stakeholders as far as adoption of your solution is concerned. Speaking of changing landscapes and industry trends, and you alluded to this at the very beginning when you were talking about AIML, what are you doing exactly with customers today to enable AIML? Excellent. So we have a few things. Uh, with one of our large biotech clients, we're currently preparing their data and loading it into a specific place so they can apply a large language model to it. This tends to be a lot of chromatography data and a lot of flow cytometry data. So they are currently taking that, extracting the metadata terms, getting the models built, and then you know training them so people can ask questions of their data, which is awesome because I'm sure you know this too, but for the last, let's call it decade, people have been saying, why can't I talk to my data like I can talk to Siri? Fair. Well, it's getting there pretty, pretty soon. 
Another thing we're doing is we're doing a lot of biomanufacturing and bioprocessing runs and preparation of data. So we're taking the headers and the consistent tags that come out of runs that say, okay, cell was done at this time with this shape and has this density and um, turbidity, et cetera. And then it helps them to figure out and plan their campaigns for when they actually take it down, whether it's got the right population of cells, et cetera, both by marrying all that data and also by applying the model on top of it. Um, and one other example I'll give you is we're doing a very deep dive right now to our chromatography data systems data because we find that it's the bread and butter of a lot of groups, right? Chemists use it, HTS people use it, quality control uses it, batch release. So finding out what you can learn from really deep data sets on, on thermochromelian or waters and power, and then looking at, you know, when is a peak and outlier? When is a retention time bad? What's your tolerance on that? Um, wh what's the peak shape supposed to look like? Um, what's the area under the curve? What do you expect? Can you do automated baseline correction? Can you take that data and can you find out a better way to run a method instead of a person sitting there and literally going, 10 minutes, go to here, 15 minutes, go to here. Um, there's ways to train AIs to do that. And since we have the data, we can help them to do that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And this is a nice segue to what I was going to ask you next, which is a hybrid between your scientific strengths as well as your strategy going forward. What are some areas where you've been traditionally very strong as a company? And what are some growth areas where you see potential as the scientific landscape evolves? Excellent question. Thank you. So we, of course, just talked about chromatography data systems. We just talked about data preparation. Those are traditional strengths. Um, we're going to add two more to that. We're going to say that cyborgs, and I don't mean CY borgs, I mean SCI borgs. Get it? Tetrascience, cyborgs. Of course. Yeah. These are hybrid people who know science deeply. They've worked in a pharma, or they've done a PhD in a tough area, or they worked in an academic center studying NGS or whatnot. But they found themselves, like our scientific data engineers, really entranced by the movement and motion and the curation of that data. So we actually have both a recruiting brand and also a kind of culture around, hey, you love science, you love data, this is the place for you. You're never going to get that, that strength anywhere else, we think. So we get people who come in here and they're like, all I've ever done, it's cry OEM. So I'm going to look at these images upright and center, and I'm going to learn all I can about structures of really complicated proteins. And we say, and that's awesome. And we love that about you, comma, it would be great to take your skills and apply them to looking at other imaging type data sets and helping us to figure out what the next schema should be for this brand of microscopy. We have them play off one another. They, the more tech inclined ones help show the more science inclined ones how to set up the schemas, drive efficiencies, get ready for scale. And the more science ones say, here's why we're doing it. And this is why this has to be done this way because cells die when they're stored at this temperature or reagents go bad when they do this or, you know, you, you can't actually have this kind of data type and here's why scientifically. And it's a wonderful marriage of those two skills in individuals. So that, that's one of our classic skills. And the other is just this forward-looking, um, we're trying to build a company for a long period of time. We're not seeking a two-year flip or a short exit or that kind of stuff. We're actually looking to build a generational brand. Because of that, we're trying to make very distinct plays. We're trying to say, look, we don't think many companies are going to devote the kind of time we are going to to understanding chromatography data sources, to understanding how flow cytometry automated gating works, <laughs> to understand why plate readers produce data in the scheme they are, and whether or not this vendor or that vendor has a specific take on the market and if they should be doing it a different way. 
So we're trying to leverage that, again, that cyborg mentality and also that adoption of both what pharma needs and what vendors need to drive, you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to go. So that, that's our strengths. But you also asked what our growth areas are. <laughs> so I sometimes take that to mean what areas could you improve in? Hopefully that's what you meant. <laughs> that is what I meant. Okay. We, just like anybody, have to deal with scale. So it's the hardest thing, right? People write whole podcasts and books about it. We think we're doing okay, right? We've got consistent playbooks to know what people are doing. We've got a good hiring brand now. We've got efficiencies in our STLC process, in our preparation process for extra new coding runs and for how we store things, move things, et cetera. But not everything's perfect. You said in my title that I have a K in there for knowledge. Our knowledge systems, we need to get better. We need to make it more transparent and open, both for us and for our customers. There's times where our customers are actually begging us to give more documentation. Well, that's a gap and an opportunity, right? We should be setting up user communities to get feedback from the horse's mouth, as it were. We should be engaging them even more transparently with our notes to the point where we have something like the GitLab model, where we actually show it out loud. Another opportunity for sort of enhancement is to really embrace very consistent models that the market has weighed off on. So things like, you know, Allotrip Simple Model, that's coming up more and more in our pharma customers. And so we are, we've been involved in this for probably four or five years now. We were joined up to Allotrope way when they were actually starting the model up. So we need to figure out better ways to get that in front of customers and better ways to deepen their understanding so we can actually use that with them. Great. Thank you for that overview. And keep, keeping in mind what you just said regarding traditional strengths and growth areas, if you were to look ahead, let's say in the next five years, where would you like to go as a company? First, I'd like to say that I don't get full vote on this, right? It's me and a team of about 12 other execs that actually help and work with our entire team to look at our strategy. Also, our investors and our partners. And there's a lot of people who get to have a vote here. However, if I had a magic wand, we had billions of dollars and could do anything we want. The tough problems we see tend to be in the sort of next layer of adoption and translation. So great, you have all your data. Okay, here it is. Okay, great, it's fixed up. Okay, great. Maybe you're doing an AIML model on that data or on multiple data streams. But are you actually getting to the point where you are driving ahead a project using all these cohesive data streams and actually learning from them dynamically in real time with updates, almost like a... Um, I hate to say mission control because it's overused, but you know, a, a way to drive lots of different products and projects from a central console or platform that allows you to see everything going on and take and then optimize certain things and maybe turn up, turn down things. I've seen that kind of strategy emerge at lots of large pharmas where their CEOs and their chief data officers literally do build these rooms that look like they're on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, looking around at screens, looking at panels, tweaking things. We think that same picture can be, to quote Conway's law, almost done through looking at the data, right? You can literally see how people are storing things, which instruments they're using, which techniques they're using, and start building bottoms up pictures of what their data networks look like, what their projects look like, and then really start helping them to optimize those. Because, right, we can see when runs fail. We can see when data isn't right and it's not been checked off, doesn't pass our audit. We can see when things could be optimized if they were stored this way and not this way, or when metadata and tags could actually be used this way to build this model. That's not something that many companies can do. 
So we think that is a really good lean forward. And then of course, got to say it, machine learning and AI, right? Getting more shots on goal, getting more of those stories, like what I related to you earlier with getting customers hooked up with their data, helping them to learn from it, helping them to actually get real demonstrable ROI from that. Because a platform like ours, you don't want a 1x return or a 10x return. You want a 100 to 1,000x return. So to do that, you need to drive AI. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about company culture. And I love what you said about recruiting earlier on when you described the cyborg phenomenon. Can you tell us a little bit about how the diversity of the founding team is reflected in the types of people you hire today at Tetra Science? And also, you know, while I was doing research for this interview, I came across the Tarselli Family Fund. Uh, For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit what it is and how it came about? Oh, gosh, multi-part question. Okay, so I'll start with the culture and the diversity of the founding team. So the founding team, again, were three academics, one more business-oriented, one more tech and engineering-oriented, and one more sort of science-oriented. So again, there's that cyborg motif right there in the founders, right? And we've tried to keep that DNA running through. So people who apply here, first, they have to read a long document we send them (laughs) called the Tetra Way. And you might think, hey, that's heavy-handed. You know, like, well, what's going on? People shouldn't have to do homework before they apply. But consider Google, consider Microsoft, consider Illumina. They ask candidates, you know, can you read these things? Can you do these problems? Can you, you know, think with your thinking cap on before you come here? And that gives us that first layer. Like, if you don't want to engage with us on this first initial exercise, then you may not fit here. And then that second sort of thing comes where they come on site and they do a very fast campaign of sort of five interviews by panel. They have an introductory one with an HR, they have two or three subject matter expert ones, and they close off with whoever the functional leader is for who they're being hired by. And it probably happens inside of two weeks. (laughs) It's a very fast, information-rich interview cycle. And we always come down to our values. If you don't want to be trustworthy and collaborative with us, if you don't want to be transparent with us, if you don't believe in equality of opportunity across the business, if you don't believe in things like committing to your craft and getting better every day and putting customers at the center of what you do, then again, there's lots of jobs out there. (laughs) But in those rare cases where somebody engages early, shows up on site and does really well, and then passes these value screen, they are immediately embraced. Like we, you know, we, we run them through the onboarding. We put them into a special group to get them going. We expose them immediately to customer relevant feedback and cases, you know, slot them onto a project team. Um, if they're an engineer, they jump right into the code base. Like we trust them from go because they passed our values and they showed curiosity. It's a rare environment, right? How, how many places can you go where people are engaged all the time or asking you interesting questions or showing you their cool adventures they do in their off time? They're reading cool books and pushing ahead models like There's not a lot of places like that. It reminds you of like Xerox Park or, you know, early IBM or of, you know, early Google. So I'm hoping that those metaphors come true, but who knows? And the Tarsali Family Fund? Sure. Thank you for the prompt. This is, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll go forward with it. About, let's call it eight years ago, I really wanted to do something that kept this ball rolling. And I wasn't even in this job, right? I was working for Novartis at the time. But I mean, I was I was doing okay in my professional career. I'd finally paid back my student loans. My wife had paid back her student loans. We 
we're in a good situation. So we said, you know, we should be doing our best to prepare for generations and generations on. So I said to my alma mater, which is the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, I said to their chemistry department, look, I'll fund one scientific award for one kid to do some summer research. I don't have a lot of money yet, but, um, you know, here's what I can afford. And can we do it this one time? And they thought it was fun and whatever. But it was so rewarding to see that first person get that award that I came back to them the next year and said, let's do two. And then I said, let's make this a fund. And then I said, well, let's make this an endowed fund so it can you know, continue in perpetuity. And I think of this writing, we've given it out for about five years and it's gone to 13 students. Um, it goes to two or three a year. And we've now extended it to a high school um, in the local area as well. And it, the criteria are, you know, you have to be a rising sophomore. So you are not fully through your career. You're not like the senior who's going around collecting up the awards and saying, aren't you great? You're in the middle of your career. And to share a personal note, you're mirroring what I did when I was around that age and trying to make a decision about my career. You know, I wanted someone to intercede at that point and say, this is a really cool place to be. So, you know, I'm hoping that I can be that interception point <laughs> that when you're 20, 21 and don't know what you want to do, I can say, you know what, biopharma data, um, machine learning, these are cool places to be. And you can help the world. You don't have to be a medical doctor. You don't have to be a pathologist. You don't have to be in government. You can jump into biopharma and you can get impact from day one. I can't afford to give you a full ride, but I can pay for some of your research and I can stay here as a trusted mentor for some years to come. And um, I've been very, very, very lucky. Uh, students in that recipient pool have gone to Harvard. They've gone to UWASH Seattle. They've gone to Northeastern. They've gotten jobs at places like Novartis, GSK, Pfizer. It's been very, very rewarding, even these early years. That's wonderful and very inspiring. So maybe my final question to you before we, we close this off is, what advice would you give to early stage founders who are developing solutions to improve how research is conducted today? So I feel I should clarify something. I'm not technically a founder of the company. I suppose I'm part of the 2.0 wave. And I've certainly been at the beginning um, sort of instantiation of the last startup I was in, but I've never personally done the founder's journey. However, I'd say that living through this kind of scale and living through this kind of funding and these, you know, trying to figure out things day to day as we do while keeping an eye on the horizon has provided a lot of learning. So first, I'd say figure out what you do really well. This is probably some time-honored advice you've heard other places. And then find other people who complement your strengths. Don't hire clones of you, right? You don't need a bunch of Amritas running around the company. You need an Amrita and a Mike and a Jim and a Xiong and a, you know, Ravi. You need everybody who can think about different things. They say in the old startup community, right? You need what, a, a hacker, a hipster, and a huckster or something? <laughs> that same thing applies here. You want to find somebody who's a really great finance person or legal person or operations person to compliment you, and then a really good strap person, et cetera. So surround yourself with people better than you. And my second uh, sort of advice is don't take your eye off the ball. There's a goal you're going to try to hit, and it's going to get really hard. And there's Saturday nights you might be working and there's times where it feels like things are burning down around you and at times where, you know, things are really, really dark and other people are getting married and taking holidays in Bali and, you know, doing all this crazy fun stuff. And you're like, and I'm working again. <laughs> but, you know, things actually get better very quickly. And then in two or three years, you wake up and you realize you're at a really cool company with a really cool culture and you've got almost unlimited upside. And you say, how can I be so lucky? 
So keeping your eye on that ball and, and not sweating that that stuff as it comes is my second piece. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us today. It's been wonderful talking to you on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Amrita. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. The best way to support the podcast is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have ideas on how we can improve the show, please let us know. Our feedback survey is in the show notes. See you next week.